Hello, I'm Alan Davis. I'm an architect and heritage lead at BDP. Welcome to the first ever BDP podcast series. It's called Old Buildings, New Beginnings. In this series, we discuss the current thinking relating to the reuse of old and existing buildings. We will discuss topics including adaptive reuse, sustainability, accessibility, improving performance, as well as the cultural significance of keeping old buildings. Why build new when you can repurpose the old? Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome again to Old Buildings, New Beginnings. This week, we're discussing how to design age-defying buildings. We'll discuss the lessons learned from working on old buildings, how we're applying those lessons in our current work, and how technical and technological innovations are being used to bring existing buildings into the 21st century. So we continue to design places that last for generations. With me today to share their thoughts on these issues are Nick Durham, Architect Director in BDP's Cardiff Studio, Jessica Kennedy, Structural Engineer Associate in our London Studio, and Mark Riddler, Lighting Consultant and Director also in our London Studio. What I'd firstly like to do is to uh, consider what we've learned from working on old buildings uh, about this issue. Uh, Old buildings are, to a certain extent, age-defying, at least to the extent that they've lasted this long, even if they may have some problems or some failings with them at this time. So can can you give some uh, examples of what you've learned from old buildings about that longevity, about their capability to survive and and to continue to to work for it. Yes, I think one of the the interesting things is that you look at older buildings and there's a certain degree of, of fact, you look at an old building and if it's still here, chances are it's been well constructed because ones that weren't well constructed or had things that didn't work about them failed and they fell down. Um, we don't quite have that same sort of sense these days. Things are, things are actually built better. We have modern design codes and can design to them. Um, and therefore, um, to some degree, um, older buildings uh, can tell us a lot about the sort of structure and how they work simply by the fact that they're still there. Uh, but I think one of the things that I've come across most in older buildings and the things that really cause detriment and cause buildings not to last is maintenance. Um, has the building been maintained? And it's probably one of the greatest issues with any building. And I think that's of, of any age. And that, and that, that includes new buildings. Um, are they being looked after? Are they easy to look after? Have they got um, gutters that you can't reach? Have they got nooks and crannies? You know, these old roofs that you can't get to that, you know, people have to clamber up and over to get to. And and, um, I think Alexandra Palace is is an example of, uh, it's a sprawling, sprawling building and bits have been infilled and courtyards have been infilled to the point 
um, without sort of forethought and and, um, and over you know many 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 years and decades. And now Alexandra Palace has huge amounts of the roof that are literally inaccessible, and they can't even get to them to dismantle them. And um, are you know are we building our buildings so that they can be easily maintained in the future? Are we thinking you know are we really making sure that what we're doing is is going to be uh, not just possible for somebody to look after, but actually easy for somebody to look after to keep it keep it going? And are we telling people? Are we telling uh, you know does everybody know how they should be maintaining their building? Are we giving you know people we give people big piles of information at the end of the building they get uh, health and safety files are we making that easy for them to read and digest the information they really need to know to kind of keep on top of it and not park it in a in a corner for 30 years which i guess we are we're, we're, we're giving them O&M manuals and we're giving them more documentation than ever yeah i think, I think it's a it's a really interesting point actually about the people sort of maintaining buildings, the clients taking kind of ownership and responsibility. And I think there's something about design quality in, in this discussion as well. I think when people think about um, designing buildings for longevity, there's a tendency to just think about flexibility and adaptability, designing buildings so that they're on regular grids and, you know, they can be adapted for lots of different uses. But there's something about, you know, delivering really good quality buildings that people feel um, I feel a sense of pride about the, the the kind of buildings that you're giving them, and and, and that way they they tend to look after them more. Um, so they kind of buy in from the end user to to really look after the building. And that that suggests two different aspects. Jessica has pointed out the very practical uh, aspects, but but there's a value system as well which is involved in this. We have got to be wanting to keep these buildings. Um, you know, the, the sort of Vitruvius thing comes into this, you know, commodity, firmness and delight. And it's the delight that makes us want to, to keep sitting beyond the buildings. I think there's something about client will as well, that um, it's whether the aspiration for the building is for that, that kind of longevity and that it, there's something in the brief which is very important. The... Um, We've just completed the, the um, student centre for um, UCL, and the, the brief for that was 150 years, which is very unusual to be written into the brief. Um, earlier in my career, I was working in for uh, projects which were office buildings in um, Broadgate Estate, and the, the design brief for them was about 20 years, which is inc incredibly short, and indeed some of them are being dismantled and rebuilt as we speak. And there's there's something also about some buildings just are better buildings that we've been working again on some 70s towers in central London and they just work brilliantly. And then when you come back to them for refurbishment, you're just finding that the the the, the they work so well, um, be it in terms of ventilation or lighting or space planning, flexibility, what have you. Um, whereas sometimes I think the buildings that have been built in the last 15, 20 years, not all of them, but too many of them, particularly in the public sector, they're, they're already falling apart. Do, do you think there's something about um, the kind of simplicity, some of those sort of office buildings in the 70s that, that, that makes them more adaptable and more sustainable? 
think it's something that we we find in um in healthcare you know there, there can be a tendency to overcomplicate buildings <laughs> and to overthink them put too much stuff i mean uh, i mentioned the building earlier one of the first things that we did with the refurbishment scheme was strip out all the um that the projects that had been delivered over the last 30 years all those layers of additional m and e infrastructure and and building we put it all back to to the original scheme and then realized that actually the building worked as it was designed in in 1916 <laughs> there's something very inherent about um about looking at a building and saying what is it being used for and what's its what's its intent and can we um, can we work with the fabric? Can we work with the building? Like you say, so many buildings, so many of our existing building stock were designed in a certain way to perform in a certain way. And um, and uh, when you look at it, as you say, if you strip it back and go back to its original intent, you know, then actually uh, a lot of it works better than we expect it to. You know, everything from sort of 16th century manor houses that were orientated to catch the sun and the fireplaces were in the right place to heat up um, the building um, and you know the, the kitchens were sited to the north to keep them cool you know you suddenly realize that 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 people you know maybe we don't give um, our forebearers quite the credit sometimes that they deserve and actually you know we, we can learn from them so we've covered good passive design passive measures solar sustainability good planning proportions of of rooms as well have uh, uh, a part to play in this here yeah, the the height of spaces the depth of rooms the quality of daylight and so on um, i guess that's true of the beauty building yes it is i mean we we found there were some amazing spaces in the beauty building some some that we have created through um the, the, the kind of uh, breaking up of, of smaller cellular rooms that were included that weren't really working for the School of Architecture. The one room in particular that, that had been designed as this sort of fantastic assembly hall at the centre of the building and then sort of lost with some of the interventions from the, the mid-90s. Um, we've been able to reinstate it and it's made such a difference to the building and to the people who are using the building and the way they use the building. Um, you know, quite, quite a simple move in itself just kind of taking some uh taking an old lecture theater out and opening up some existing windows that have been covered up but uh, it's, the change has been incredible so so what we're covering is really good fundamentals good design fundamentals from an architectural point of view from a structural point of view i want to turn a bit to the the more uh transient parts of the building uh, and that is the technology you, you've referred already, uh, Nick, to, to uh, plant and uh, M&E installations. So I want to, to investigate. You know, these are things with shorter lifespans. Everybody accepts that you know, the building services in the building, uh, you know, the rule of thumb is uh, 30, 30 years, whereas we expect our buildings to last much longer. So let's talk a bit about technical and technological innovations um, and, and not only what's there now but but what we need as innovations to bring our buildings uh, into the 21st century um, mark you're involved in bringing 
innovative technology into existing buildings, including some very uh, notable historic buildings. Um, can you tell us, first of all, what those new technologies are uh, that you are currently dealing with? I think the thing about technology is that it, it is, it's iterating and evolving ever more quickly. So that a generation of technology, you're probably looking at five years and that will reduce from four to three to two so that the, the, the necessary replacement of it in order to keep up is really quick. How we respond to that in a historic setting it's, is to absolutely make sure that the pipes and wires are there in a rational fashion that can be, speaking to Jessica's point, replaced easily and fairly frequently without undue interruption to the business of the building and importantly its fabric and then increasingly we're relying on wireless communication of data um, but still relying on small power either to lighting at high level or small power at low level um, to make sure that that provides you with an infrastructure that allows you then to bolt on technologies as and when they become mature. And at that, and at, again, coming back to, the, to my Senate House example, there as an electrical building, they, they made sure that there was horizontal and vertical containment that could be reused, and indeed was, and that the 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 grids on which that building was planned both in terms of partitioning but also electrical systems interestingly was related to the human scale and the physics of light which never change and are immutable and forever adaptable and reusable so that it was a, it, it it was a very as i said earlier it was a very contemporary building very easy to to refurbish i think one of the ways that when we're approaching new historic projects, if you will, um, is that how can we put those rewirable systems in in a way that doesn't disrupt the fabric? But if we can do that, then um, then it becomes a very flexible building and will then allow you to make sure that it's contemporary and fulfills a flexible function. Yeah, I think it's, it's that... Um problem that, that always crops up about you know coordination of um, all the different engineering infrastructures with the architecture and and that that example stresses the importance of of having that that interdisciplinary input at a very early stage in the project you know it should never be seen the technology should never be seen as an add-on you know it, it's it's the, the you know the life systems that support the, the the life of the building but also I think it should never be seen as, a, as an excuse for um, for not having very good design in the first place. You know, technology should never be a solution in its own. No, I don't think technology can fix a bad building. No, um, no. But the, I, th I think it's quite often the rhythm of the building, the heartbeat of the building. The building has a clarity which links the, its structure, its form, its use, with its use and its human encounter then you, you're probably at a very good position for a very successful building. I liked what you were saying, Mark, about the sort of the integration 
um, because actually that's something that um, I think historically um, uh, engineers and architects and historic buildings often do very well. You know, you look at the Victorian engineering, you look at the sort of the Houses of Parliament, how things were designed as one sort of system, the, the sort of the... Um, in conservation, the role between the structural engineer and the architect is often very, very, very blurred. You know, who's dealing with the, the, the these beautiful uh, stone stone um, vaults, or, um, or or the you know when does the sort of external fabric become architecture and and engineering? And similarly, when does the, the building services? They're they're all built together, and and the the whole um, the whole was 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 designed. You know, not just by one person layering on top of another, but much more sort of intrinsically knitted together. And that's where, you know, sort of, um, you know, having such multidisciplinary design teams really helps being able to, rather than sort of stack one design on top of another, make sure they are all brought together and, and work harmoniously. And that will make the building work now and hopefully in the future because we know that it has been designed with with future flexibility for um for the technology um in mind that the building services are, are are properly integrated and not sort of you know stuck through you know we've had to cut rises at the last minute um and i think that really helps um as you say it you, you can see that in buildings that have lasted and certainly that's true in terms of lighting um wearing my lighting designer's hat on now um is that those early conversations um you were talking about orientation of buildings um the 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 early consideration of daylight how it penetrates a building but then connecting that with view facade design and space planning as one exercise rather than two separate ones um, and it's that those early conversations to make sure that all the elements are singing the same story. Hmm. I'm going to try and bring you back to something you were uh, referring to earlier, Mark, which is some of the technologies. And some of them uh, give us reasons to be cheerful in terms of reusing old buildings. And those are um, the uh, wireless technology and the miniaturization of technology. Now, those seem to suggest that you know, those two factors will make it easier to adapt buildings, to, to, to modernize buildings. Um, there is one aspect which I think is much more challenging, and that is the uh, designing for climate change, which means that heating and ventilation requirements will become more onerous, potentially. Um, would anyone like to comment on what the fundamentals of that are in terms of uh, adapting buildings or, or building new buildings? I think um, <clears throat> from a technological perspective, obviously technology exists now um, to uh, for, for us to know a lot more about how buildings operate, about how they how they work, um, you know, we can be a lot more intelligent in our um, understanding and assessment of of existing buildings. You know, learning about how they respond to um, changes daily, monthly through the seasons, and and kind of wider climate change. Um, so I think there's there's an opportunity there 
to um, uh, kind of learn those lessons from the existing buildings, you know, apply them to, to repurposing, but also to apply those lessons to, to, to new buildings. I, I'm always a bit sort of um, nervous about the, the the idea of controlling the environments too much because that there's the, that very sort of technological approach where you can measure everything and you can adapt everything and control everything, but it takes away the sort of personal element to to control of your space. You know, if you're feeling a bit warm, you can open the window or or turn the lights up a bit or um that, that that's always a challenge and you know particularly in in healthcare buildings which are huge energy consumers how do we make them more passive how do we make them net zero it's it's it's, it's quite a hard challenge and again i don't think yeah, it's not all about the technology uh, and it brings us back to this um, uh, uh, tension between ceiling buildings or, or conditioning buildings or making them rely more on uh, natural ventilation. One of the things that has driven mechanical ventilation, which will change quickly, is air pollution and noise. So you have to then seal a facade, which then means that natural vent is very much difficult and therefore you have to mechanically vent. But with the advent of electric cars, noise is going to plummet in cities particular. And then hopefully as well, air quality will improve um, so there's a, I think there's a really big opportunity there to actually go back to um, uh, more passive ways of um, of designing. And and by combining that with you know, the the passive design of spaces that you were talking about earlier, then uh, it becomes less uh, energy consuming as well. Could I just pick up on on, on Nick's point about because um, this is this is I find this this fascinating. I was at a at a, at a heritage conference on Friday, which is all about sustainability and the climate crisis, and trying to understand, you know, how people, um, you know, deal with with buildings and, and what Nick was saying about the the personal element. I, and I'm also married to a building services engineer, therefore I, I I have a lot of I have a lot of this. It's about the personal. Um, element the idea of you know controlling a climate is quite a, a modern um, assessment actually what we're trying to is the person we're trying to control and basically if your building is well ventilated you just don't and and is a pleasant temperature you don't get any complaints that's how you know you've got the correct environment and historic buildings um, again it was about how how were they dealing with the the person um, uh, where their drafts coming in and therefore they were hanging uh, tapestries on on the wall um, and what did they have the ability to open windows and and that sort of thing and this this concept that 21 degrees is what everybody is aiming for is actually it, it's not actually something that that is a real thing everybody feels i get terribly cold at 21 degrees and other people get much too hot at 21 degrees um and so are we actually um you know are we actually doing the right thing by sort of sealing our, our buildings or providing those those better opportunities for um for, for sort of more passive options effectively yeah that's it maybe uh Maybe we don't need more intelligent buildings. We just need better jumpers. <laughs> that 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 did come up. Uh, the um, there was there's there's been research recently on people um uh, living in 
in, 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 in historic homes and cottages and things, trying to understand how they actually live. And a lot of people have, uh, when asked, you know, how do they moderate sort of their thermal comfort, uh, have mentioned things like jumpers and pets. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, perhaps we, perhaps we have fewer cats in the building. Very good. Layers and animals. So, yeah. Um, good. I'm going to just turn now to, to, to the final theme which is how we are applying the lessons we learned from working on buildings which have lasted, how we're applying those lessons in our current work. Now, this is relevant for all of us, whether we're working on uh, adapting existing buildings, whether they're old or not, uh, or whether we're building new. You know, what lessons would we... Um, would we take from our current work? And, and we may have touched on some of these. Um, I think I would, uh, I've mentioned previously, challenge, you know, trying to understand how the building is going to be used and maintained and uh, how can we make that um, as easy as possible. And also thinking about how we, uh, we design our structure and our elements. And are we designing them for the right longevity you know do we can how much extra does it cost us either um financially or in embodied carbon to design for 120 year um, reinforced concrete structure rather than simply uh, a 60 year um, are we doing our detailing correctly so that we're not letting water get in and, and cause issues um and are we making sure that we're um we're designing holistically as a as a as a team to try and make this building really work um, and uh, and integrating everything together so it's got its best chance of being able to continue its use in the future. For me it's about how that fundamental relationship between the human user and the building and you get that relationship right it drives proportion it drives the, the rationale it drives the spirit of the building and when that works well, the per the building not only functions really well, but it also has a real personality, which generates an emotional connection with it and a value which leads to longevity. So Nick, um, just coming finally to you, as an architect, you mentioned you've worked on a range of new buildings and you've also uh, re recently refurbished the Butte Building um, of the Welsh School of Architecture, where you and I both study, um, and where you're also a tutor. So I guess the question is, what advice would you give to your students there, or to your colleagues at BDP, uh, about the key principles of making age-defying buildings? I think for me, the, the, the key principle, one of the key principles, I should say, is is about um, materiality. It's about selecting a, appropriate materials to, to, to make your buildings out of. Um, you know, we talk about longevity of, you know, buildings like the Butte Building, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's just a slightly over 100 years old. It was made from a very simple palette of materials that were all all appropriate to uh, to the period. So they, you know, it was um, 
although you know it was designed in a kind of neoclassical style it 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 was designed using technology that was cutting edge at the time um uh and i think that, that that's a lesson that that we all should learn you know and, and apply to buildings you know we need to use the appropriate technology but but I'm always a, a kind of firm believer in the mantra of just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And I think, you know, th there needs to be that this kind of rigor at the start of every project to really think about, right, what what should we make this building out of? And agree that that kind of base palette, which will then or should inform the, the, the entire design process. You know, if you're if you decide that you're going to make something out of a, a concrete frame, or you're going to decide you're going to make something out of cross-laminated timber, then you would take a very different approach to to the to the design process in order to get the most out of that material, and and um, uh, and also sort of think about the how, how that material affects the life of the building, but also what happens to the material beyond the life of the building. So for me, that, that uh, quite interested in the idea of designing for disassembly and, and reuse. And obviously, there are some materials that are very easy to reuse and adapt beyond the life of a building, and some that were harder uh, or will be harder to reuse. I think that's really interesting. When well, we've done quite a lot of work on circular economy and lighting, which has thrown up all sorts of interesting things that I didn't think were going to apply. But one of the questions is how much you integrate equipment into the fabric of the building which has historically been the way in which i've designed you know light without light fittings try and make it invisible um moving away from overt decorative uh, gestures but actually now we're beginning to question that as an approach and maybe what we should be doing is disaggregating that equipment from the from the building that allows easy disassembly and reuse um and um but that's that throws up some aesthetic questions which are really quite interesting it's not a bad thing to do but it's um it's a different way of doing it yeah it's something going back to the point you you, you were uh raised earlier Alan, about you know working on a, a school of architecture and what advice you give to students i mean designing a, a building that is completely expressive and legible and you, and you can look at the building and understand how it works there's something interesting about that as well as, a, as an idea that's great i think it's been a really good conversation we've covered a lot of different topics and i am not going to try and summarize it i am reminded of a mantra that was around when i was a student um, which was uh, long life low energy loose fit and we've touched on some of those things today. So, you know, the principles are still there. Um, really good conversation. Thanks very much for the input from all three of you, Nick, Mark, and Jessica. Thanks again. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks, Alan.